have a couple things that I'd like to talk about. Uh, one of them, oil going below zero. That's pretty interesting. And then you mentioned you want to talk about a couple things with Corona. So the floor is yours, sir. Okay. So in terms of Corona, there was uh, quite a quite a bit of news coming out in the, in the past number of days, like in the research uh, end and uh, some big studies coming out on uh, hydrochloroquine and to see how that responds. It's just that to do that study properly, just based on a lot of the research people that I've looked at, it needs to be done in combination with hydrochloroquine, uh, zinc, as well as uh, whether it's azithromycin or whether it's this uh, new formulation uh, through basically this Israeli company uh, that's uh, basically it's a quite interesting because um, one of the big problems that uh, people are having right now is that because there's a number of mutations uh, that have taken place in this virus as it's moved across the world um, the concern is that if they're working on an earlier um, representation of, of the RNA and in the event that these um, some of these mutations change enough mm -hmm. to cause the surface structure of the virus not to be actually interpreted uh, by the uh, the vaccine, then that could be problematic because uh, then we may need another vaccine. So this Israeli company uh, supposedly may have a solution to that where they, they believe that they're targeting a certain um, part of, uh, of the virus in terms of representing it such that even if it was to mutate, it would allow it to actually recognize it in further mutations. And that's partly because a lot of the mutations uh, do not influence uh, you know, in, in terms of making the virus more dangerous, it also doesn't necessarily, in some cases, it makes it less dangerous. Uh, but so far, there haven't been mutations uh, that have indicated that it's becoming less virulent or, uh, or less of a spread factor. But it's quite possible that over time, that could happen. But there's so far, there's only been maybe one uh, mutation that could be problematic because it that this uh, and that specific mutation that's potentially problematic is targeting a certain surface structure of the, of the um, actual virus, which would make it more difficult for um, a vaccine to recognize it if it if it did not have knowledge of the specific area of the uh, the viral signature. Uh, to recognize, but this company from uh, Israel apparently is working on something that could attack that. And I'm going to mention uh, the name of the company because it's actually something that actually has a buy signal um, hmm. in our prediction machine over here. It's, uh, it, I wouldn't say it's, it, it's a screaming buy, but it's definitely interesting and it, it has the potential to you know, to go up 30 to 100%. And who knows? I mean, if it becomes something major, it could, go, it could do a lot more than that. But it's, it's, it's not just, I'm mentioning it not just because of the potential opportunity, but just the fact that uh, it could, 
potentially be one of the solutions to this uh, situation. Company is Red Hill Biopharma. And the symbol is RDHL. And uh, just looking at it here, just to give you an idea, uh, it, it made a low back in March the 18th uh, when the market was sinking at around 326. Pretty much everything, you know, uh, was tanking at that time. So I think it would be more favorable to discuss what the, the median price of this stock really was since, uh, let's say, the past uh, year and a half. And it was really hovering in a trading range between $11 and $5. And that's a wide range, but pretty common for biotech stocks. And uh, median range, somewhere around 7 bucks would be kind of where a lot of trading activity took place. Um, for quite some time. This stock was much higher um, a bit back, back in uh, 2015, had a spike up at around $22. And, uh, and now it's, it's bounced back uh, as of the 14th to around uh, $8.24. And it had a nice little pullback in the past few days here. And so that's sitting at around 716. So I kind of like that because I like uh, the idea of stocks that have good intermediate term potential pulling back. So it's, it's an opportunity to look at it on a shorter term intraday timeframe to try to uh, get in. And it looks like there's lots of uh, support in the area of uh, today's low and, uh, and the $6 area. And uh, the next, you know, leg up looks like it wants to, uh, to go to around 12 bucks. So it's got another $5 to go uh, to get to fair value on, on my modeling over here. But uh, could it go much higher? Yeah, I mean, on any kind of news, it could easily spike to uh, 17 bucks. I think it's more of a time thing uh, that it just seems to, it's turned the corner and there's a lot of positive catalysts that could take place uh, in this company for a potential vaccine candidate. So that's very interesting. Uh, the other piece that caught my eye today was uh, the, in New York, uh, a, a lot of people, I believe the governor or, uh, or the mayor, uh, but they were calling out for, you know, there's going to be a need for additional thermometers that are infrared thermometers, thermometers that you do not. Uh, you know, the worst thing is with social distancing, you don't want to be using a standard thermometer and then getting close to somebody. So, but at the same time, it's not very effective if you're, you know, if you have to start like uh, measuring the temperature of, of thousands of people that may be, you know, if you bring people back to work and people are walking into a building and there's like thousands of people, you know, moving by at any given time, it's not really going to be efficient to go and start having a whole bunch of these even infrared thermometers and, you know, measuring people one by one. So there are some more industrial solutions to that uh, that have come out of uh, a number of places like, but one has come out of my uh, homeland country, which is Canada. So um, basically the, the company is called, I believe it's called Reed Security. And they basically have this uh, device that it could just, you don't have to like just have a whole bunch of thermometers. It basically captures a, an image through a, 
video capture and could actually automatically look at several people at once, flag it, and then coordinate action based on what it sees. So it, it could be something much more automated, combining AI. And uh, yeah, so I think that's, that's an approach that I, I think would be very useful to, um, for uh, widespread um, screening uh, once people come back into the workplace. Is that read as an R E E D? I believe it is. I'm just going to zoom in over here to my, my notes here. Okay. Yes, it's R E E D. Yeah, it's called the Fever Screening Camera, high def camera. And it's. Uh, is, this, uh, is this a company that's publicly traded? I don't believe so. I don't believe it's, uh, no, I, I, I believe it's private. Okay. Uh, yeah, and it's, uh, it's out of Canada. Uh, I think Calgary, if I'm not mistaken. There's a number of places between Calgary, like in, Saskat in Saskatchewan and Alberta, that um, they have their offices. And it's uh, basically targeting like uh, processing facilities, grocery stores, hospitals, airports, schools. Uh, retailers. So it could be a very effective um, approach, you know, to do it. So you, you don't have to, uh, you know, buy thousands uh, of different uh, kinds of uh, these infrared thermometers. And also, even if you did, it wouldn't be very efficient because you'd have a lot of people involved in the process interacting with it when those people could be, be put to work, um, in, you know, in a better way. Uh, I think that's one of the things that would be more appropriate for a machine and AI application. So, uh, yeah, so that looks quite interesting. Um, but there's, there's a couple other interesting features, like uh, also uh, a number of doctors and uh, that were like interviewed in, in the press and people were kind of asking questions like, why are there so many other symptoms associated um, with this disease? Like, you know, originally they thought, oh, I thought it's just the lungs. I, um, and then, you know, they knew that it was a bit of the heart and like wherever the ACE2 receptors were located, because that's where the actual virus uh, uh, binds to. But uh, the thing is, it, it's gone beyond that. Now they're noticing that, or at least that's what, they're talking about now, I've been doing quite a bit of um, research in terms of people I'm connected to um, in the community that do some deep research. And uh, based on that, it, it's, it's not surprising, based on some new mechanisms of how the virus works, that it's actually causing problems in other organs in, in different ways than how a lot of people thought it's, uh, you know, thought the mechanism is like it's affecting the neurological system. Uh, it's 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 causing blood clotting. <laughs> it's uh, it's causing like the kidneys to fail, like all, all kinds of problems. And it's not like it, it's not your usual suspect. Like sometimes when you don't get proper oxygen in the systems and uh, 
certain you know um, organs fail, it could cause other organs to fail. That's common, like that's known, like in in medicine. But if there's a different mechanism that's causing it, that that could be problematic. So, anyways, uh, based on my review, and it's something you know for other medical professionals, because obviously I'm I'm an investment. Um, you know, I analyze investments and study the physics of uh, market movement and contagions in uh, in data sets. But when it comes to medicine, we leave it to the doctors and and the virologists. But I still think there's nothing wrong with uh, you know doing your own research and identifying you know viable uh, you know sources where there's you know information in the journals or contacts that are that have a high reliability and they and if they've done research that indicates that it could answer some of these questions then at least mentioning these things and then having the medical community kind of collaborate and verify whether these things hold validity that's part of the scientific method and i think it would go a long way in terms of maybe answering some of the questions that uh, people are you know maybe making false assumptions on because they're strictly assuming that this virus um, has only one mechanism of, of entry into the body. Um, so what I've through my research, what I've discovered from other researchers are the following. Uh, first of all, uh, a lot of people, uh, I wouldn't say a lot of people, but some doctors have noticed that. Uh, when the oxygen levels were really, really low uh, in the uh, in some of their readings, they would automatically put them, like like intubate them and put them onto uh, to ventilators, and that actually. You mentioned that last time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just, I just want to just, just want to mention, I just want to mention one component of that. Yeah, uh, not to cut you off. I'm just connecting the dots here. We didn't know how to treat it. So, yeah, but here's, here's the thing that the mechanism, which I didn't talk about last time is actually caused by the binding effect of he the potentially the mechanism is the binding effect of hemoglobin um, uh, to oxygen through um, iron uh, in, 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 in the, uh, in the body. And the thing is, uh, there was some research done that indicated that potentially, uh, the cause of the, you know, the, the, um, the severity of going from an okay state to it, you know, downhill in a very, very short period of time, uh, and where somebody's alert and then completely intubated couldn't necessarily be explained through normal processes. Uh, so uh, the, dis the discovery here, and to be analyzed further, I'm mentioning it so that other people that specialize in hematology could actually study this with this virus. And because it, you know, it hasn't been widely studied, but it has been mentioned. So I think it could be worthy to explain some of these discrepancies. And the thing is, it could potentially be a blood disorder as well, uh, and, and, and not just the virus that's causing the, uh, the lungs uh, to actually, uh, you know, suffer such trauma. And 
And because what happens is, uh, what, what they, they figured out is that the, the iron could actually, um, the binding um, of, the, of the iron could actually detach and you could actually get iron running around uh, the, you know, running around the system outside, like in, in the red blood cells. Like, so if, if you get, if you get a situation where it's actually leaving the system that it's bound to, that could be a very dangerous chemical kind of reaction in the system that actually results in, in the breakdown of the lungs and its operation. And so that's just one big factor that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about, but there were some researchers that actually believe this may be the case. So I would just put a call out to other specialists in, in the uh, area to maybe uh, study that line, either refute it or maybe something will come out of it in order to uh, investigate further treatment. And because what they identified is that if you, you know, just put somebody onto intubation when they're in a state uh, that doesn't necessarily warrant it, it can make things um, worse. So, so now I think a, a number of doctors are discovering other avenues, but uh, just because those other avenues are working in some cases doesn't mean that it's directly tied to the mechanism that may be causing the problem in some cases. So that's, that's one thing uh, I wanted to say. The other thing uh, uh, is that it's not just the ACE2 receptor that is um, providing an entry um, of the virus uh, into the body. Uh, there's also this uh, um, protein. Uh, basically, it's uh, the CD147 uh, protein, which uh, the spike um, of the virus could actually bind to. And, uh, and supposedly uh, some research, uh, researchers actually believe that it's a, it's a very essential receptor on the red blood cells um, for the human um, malaria parasite. That could explain why hydroxychloroquine um, tends to work um, or, you know, tends to work, I would say, because there's no official proof yet, but we're going to get a lot more results today. But it tends to work in terms of uh, mitigating uh, the severe effect on the lungs and then having patients potentially recover. But um, that could be the correlation there. But again, I, I would suggest that based on a lot of the research I looked at, it, that needs to be done in conjunction um, with other um, with, with zinc and some other uh, therapeutics as well. So there's that piece of information. And there's a couple other ones I just quickly want to just go over before uh, we answer some of the other questions about oil today, because that, that's actually a very exciting topic. <laughs> and we'll be there in a few minutes here. So Of course, yeah, take your time. Yep. I'm just taking my time here. So you'll splice this segment while I'm looking for my notes. So you can, <laughs> <laughs> let's see. Okay. Okay. Yeah, this, this was really, really interesting. Um, uh, some research that I, uh, 
looked at that came out today is that uh, there's been a lot of controversy over the timeline of when this virus actually occurred. Like, did it actually occur, you know, um, as an origin at the market in China, like uh, on Christmas Eve, or or did it actually um, occur much earlier that some people um, are speculating on? And uh, this is some research... uh, done by a geneticist out of the University of Harvard. And uh, basically what they found is that uh, there were like three different um, mutations. There was like the A, B, and the C mutation. And it was originally um, thought that the, uh, the A mutation, uh, well, the A, type A was, was the origin, but... Uh, but actually it's, it's the minority. Uh, so basically uh, the B type, I think, I believe they were saying um, was the uh, majority type and the C type I think was the type found in, uh, in Singapore. But the, the, the most important thing to get out of it is that they, um, they kind of unraveled the viral tree and they applied a, information about the mutation rate of the virus um, at, and, and like a, as a clock in order to actually um, determine uh, exactly when the, uh, the outbreak started. And they kind of put um, a timeline around it. They, they believed it was no earlier than September 13th, 2019, and no later than December 7th. 2019. So that basically means that the virus at the very minimal was circulating for several weeks prior to when it was reported. Uh, That definitely is going to attract attention. So I'm sure a lot of people have already maybe read this research in the, in the high circles, but this podcast is, is meant for everyone and it would be interesting for people to be aware of this so that they could actually get to the truth. Um, So anyways, I I thought that was uh, kind of interesting there. Um, Next, next piece of information that I want to talk about here. Let's see. Uh, Give me a second. It's, uh, It's all over the place here. Okay, so last thing I wanted to just uh, mention, just uh, an interesting piece of uh, global surveillance software that I came across that looks like second to none in the industry in terms of uh, its ability to kind of do a full uh, serology of, uh, you know, someone's blood and actually determine um, any type of pathogen that has like been in somebody's system um, based on everything that's out there in the, uh, in the animal kingdom or out, you know, in, in the known or, or even some of the things that are not known to a lot of people in terms of pathogens. So, um, and it's extremely fast, extremely precise and the, and the company name. And I, I don't believe this, uh, this company is actually um, teamed up uh, 
with a number of um, other companies in the, uh, I believe in the public space, but this company is called Arc Bio, and they've got this uh, technology called Galileo. And uh, I, I believe that uh, you're, we're going to be hearing a lot about that company in terms of how they're revolutionizing uh, pathogen uh, detection. So I just wanted to put that out there just for uh, potential medical uh, professionals that are looking for medical um, solutions to their problems. I would definitely uh, look up that company and see if that could fit into the reservoir of, uh, of opportunities to deal with the situation. So that pretty much uh, covers uh, all the main points I want to talk about in terms of the uh, coronavirus um, from a uh, from the disease point of view. Uh, the only other piece maybe I'd just like to talk about, and I think I may have even touched upon it at one time, I just want to just remind, remind people again about it, is that uh, when we get into the con contact uh, tracing um, part of, uh, you know, solving this whole problem here, um, it's, it's absolutely critical that that is done before people actually start going out in droves. And there's a lot of like, you know, protests going on right now. People want to go back. But I mean, if you, if you don't do that with proper testing or have any idea of what groups of the population have it, uh, it's not going to end very well because uh, whatever places have actually implemented contact tracing the way it's supposed to be done, things work successfully there and who, whoever hasn't done it, not so, not as good. So not saying that the outcome has to be totally negative if it's, if it's done incrementally, but it's extremely important to have the patience to, you know, to wait for the, the government to have the, uh, the testing in order. I believe they're, they're getting probably pretty close. And with a lot of these companies that are working on uh, these test units. Um, I don't think it's going to be long before uh, there's going to be mass testing and then the ability to actually apply um, AI technology and uh, technology for, you know, locating uh, the connections of where, you know, of how networks and people are commingling so that they could figure out exactly who to isolate and who not to isolate so that people could go back to work. Some of the models, I believe when they're actually trying to determine what percentage of the population actually has this outside, you know, pre-testing, they've been incorporating, you know, um, models originally that were based on exponential uh, functions. And in reality, and I touched on this before, that it's really based on power law assumptions. And what that basically means is that uh, whatever the rate is of the virus, um, expanding uh, in the future. I think it, it would have been something like three or four, as much as seven in some cases, if you did nothing. But doing something, you know, takes it down, you know, the idea is to get it below one. But if people start going out, it's going to probably be in the two to three range. And, but you can't make the assumption that if people go out, it's actually going to, you know, every 
so often in, um, it's going to double on every single cycle. So let's say the interval is X days. It's not like every X days, it's gonna double. And part of the reason is, is because that makes the assumption, uh, that would make the assumption that every interval is constant uh, for the factor of the spread, but it's not because once people are aware that uh, this is potentially dangerous, they're going to go out, but they're going to still be sensible of who they connect with. So most likely people that have been indoors for a long period of time uh, want to go out, but they're not going to be so, um, you know, crazy that they're going to just start interacting with everyone that they don't know. They're going to probably go to, you know, connect with their close circles, their families, their friends. So their community of connection is a small world. It's not like the global environment. Maybe possibly in big cities that have subway systems where a certain number of people have to interact with people they don't know in order to get to where they need to go. But they do that over short periods of time during the day. So you can't assume that as time moves on, those numbers stay constant. So it could be that under normal conditions, if people are out, it would be two. But given that they have knowledge of the danger, they're likely going to stay in small circles. So it could start exponentially going down their, you know, their, their circle of interaction. And that could be why the spread of the virus was a lot less than what the original numbers um, you know, indicated. They thought in the beginning there could be hundreds of thousands uh, uh, you know, of people that, that have died by now. And the reality mm -hmm. is it's, uh, it's, it's still uh, in, in the 40,000 area, a terrible thing and probably get a rise considering that there's, you know, over 10,000 people that are still critically ill from it, but at least the curve is coming down. And with these, you know, with clinical understanding of how to treat this without always having to intubate somebody and with these new types of uh, treatments, I, I definitely am quite optimistic on that part, but I do believe that, uh, there could be some very significant volatility uh, in the markets uh, in, in the United States um, at, after the end of this month. And uh, that could um, improve sometime as we uh, get towards the, uh, you know, after the 4th of July. So that could be a present uh, for Independence Day, an improvement, you know, from the volatility. Mm -hmm. uh, but right now, uh, whatever trend has been intact in the market, it's likely to, to continue um, towards the end of the month. Whatever stocks we've talked about, those are our favorites. Those are going to be in play uh, for the foreseeable future into, uh, into next year. So, uh, But no stocks go vertical all the time. And we all know that there's a beta effect. When, and that basically means that uh, if the market goes up, then certain stocks will go, uh, you know, will be lifted up because of the market. And when the market goes down as an average, um, stocks could go down, even though they're in an uptrend. So the idea would be to take some profit. I'm going to be watching it closely. So as we get towards the end of the month, I'm going to check for any kind of short-term um, volatility that is confirmed. Right now, it's just indicating that it's very high likelihood that some volatility is going to come back into the market after the end of this month. Uh, but uh, it's just going to be 
a, uh, a pullback where uh, traders could reposition and investors could actually go in for a, uh, an intermediate term move that could carry us for quite some time, especially in technology and, and biotechnology as this uh, solution to the crisis unfolds. So that's, that's all I really wanted to say about uh, that aspect. And now I guess I could answer your, uh, your next question about oil. Yeah, and uh, ice cream being more profitable than oil now. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of funny because a, a long t like the prediction machine that I use, uh, sometimes it gives um, an answer. It's kind of like, you know, somebody types a, something into a calculator and they don't know what it represents. And then they, somebody says like, what's like, you know, 20 times 340. And they're not really thinking what they're typing in. They're just reading off like the calculator. And somebody says it's minus 2 million. It's like, uh, well, that doesn't make sense. Number two, well, number one, that can't, you don't get a minus number when you, when you do that kind of calculation. So, but, and it's kind of like, reminds me like I once had a target on a commodity where I had a negative number as a potential. And, it, and uh, somebody said, that's impossible. And I said, no, it's not impossible because like, it's quite possible that you produce so much of something that you have nowhere to store it. And if you have nowhere to store it, you have to pay somebody to take it away. So now the reality is, even though that number indicates that, that condition does not have to, con to persist long enough for the market to allow you to act on it. So it may mathematically print that number, but it may not actually be a practical, um, you may not be able to actually act on it. So, but it still sends a message. It sends a message that there's way too much oil being produced based on the, the demand shock in the economy. Uh, and around the world. And we've already, like, we had an episode uh, a bit back, uh, a few weeks back, where we talked about, uh, you know, this, this problem, this very problem of this abundance of oil that we have nowhere to store. And the biggest beneficiary of that was uh, going to be the, the tanker companies that are offshore because there's, there's nowhere to put it on land. So, they're really benefiting right now tremendously. Their, their rates are going up and uh, they're, they're putting out some more, uh, some more ships and they're becoming more profitable. So uh, I'm actually going to mention the name of the company. I can now mention it. Uh, so last time I, I indicated that there were a few names and um, most of them were reserved for the premium package, but uh, I'll, I'll mention one name today, and that name is uh, Nordic American Tankers, NAT, and uh, it had quite a, a nice push up today in response to the news, given that they benefit from it. There's a few other names in the industry as well. Uh, yeah, so actually, I'm going to just put up, pull up one of the other names. I could actually mention one other name here. Let me just see. I believe it's, uh, let me see, T, 
one sec here. Okay, so it's TNK is the uh, symbol. Just for context, the uh, Nordic American tankers went up 19% today. Actually, 20.51. You always have to be right, Ephraim. <laughs> We're both right. Well, as of the close on my uh, on mine here, I guess you're, you have access yeah, to aftermarket yeah. data. Yeah, different data systems. And somebody else will be looking at their set and it's going to say some other number because they may be looking at after hours. So the, the, the reality is it went like, you know, it went up a lot today, double, you know, more than 20, around 20%. So, which is what people try to get in an entire year or two years, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and, it, and it hasn't even started moving yet. Um, now that doesn't mean uh, if they announce something tomorrow and oil starts going back up in the near term that this doesn't pull back intraday, but it's just, it's just a blip in, in the picture. It's been consistently pretty much going up uh, since the beginning of the month. And, uh, and yeah, so there's, there's a little bit of uh, resistance, um, but not much. I mean, let me just see here. Looking at it here, touch of resistance at like 509 to 564. But, you know, that could easily be chipped away. I mean, because all you need is if you close above 567 on, a, you know, for a couple of days, you're, you know, your next area of resistance isn't until about $12.50. So there's a huge move pending. And even if the market consolidates here, between say 376 and 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 550, uh, you know, it, it does look like uh, as we advance uh, into the uh, into the middle of the year, um, it's going to chip away that resistance regardless, and just likely head up to at least 1250. So, and I've seen things like this go way higher. I mean, I, I could make a case for this stock. Uh, you know, going to like thirty or forty dollars, just because the, this it's these kind of stocks that have they don't have lots of liquidity, and when stories like this come out, uh, they could just gap up. So I, I tell you one thing: if you if you see a gap in the market on a given day, and it gets above twelve dollars and sixty cents, especially if it happens on the open, take off seventy five percent of the position, and you can let the rest ride. And at that point, it doesn't matter what it does because there'll be an out. Usually when trends like this happen, even if there's a, a one volatile event that happens after it hits the first, the major target, um, it usually retests it. And if before it retests it, it forms a new signal and I indicate that, then you could just hold it past the target to another target. If it doesn't, then we could just get out and you could finesse your way out of the last 25% of the position. So that's one way of, handling um, risk when you get some wild moves so you could, you know, not give away your profit. Uh, so that's that stock. The other one I will mention that's in the space uh, is TNK and that's TK tankers. And uh, that one looks phenomenal. Absolutely incredible. Um, and it's also been moving up uh, with that industry group. And it also appears that over the same period of time as Nat, uh, 
it's likely going to try to do a significant move up. It's uh, there's some uh, resistance, uh, near-term resistance at 24 to uh, 28. I do believe that will be um, blown out in the course of this. And the next major area that I would look for a, a target would be around uh, somewhere between $46 and $50. So uh, take profit there. That's everything I have to say about uh, the tankers. So the gist is for people that are trying to take advantage of this situation that's going on, um, the overall theme is that oil is being produced, their demand for it isn't very high. And so what they're doing is they have to store it. And these companies are publicly traded. So you can kind of get in on that action. And more than likely, I mean, it's looking pretty good. Yeah, I mean, you know, you don't need such a, a drop in, uh, in crew to get these things going. Historically, they've done tremendously well just with with a, just a, a small condition of, uh, you know, of, of a lot of oil. I well, mean, this is yeah, I mean, we've been looking at um, NAT, T and K for a while now. And, you know, this was before today. And these were already profitable almost right when, when we called it. Yes. And now it's just, now it's just crazy. Yeah. But, it, but it's going to go really crazy. Like now people, <laughs> people are just noticing. Like that's the thing. You, you, it's, it's bad to be getting in once people really start noticing. Because what could end up happening, what, this is what happens a lot, is that, okay, you're, people will think, okay, um, I'll just wait another day. Oh, I'll just wait another day. And what, what ends up happening is that everyone's then thinking, oh, I should have got in. And then they all get in the next day, but you, but they put their orders in like a lot of like the rookie traders will put their orders in at market on the open and it ends up gapping up. So you think that, Oh, I'll just wait till the next day and I'll just buy it. But the problem is sometimes you're buying at 30 or 40% higher once it really starts to go. So it's, it's accelerating now, uh, but it's, it, it, it's not like, the biggest day we're going to be seeing, let's put it that way. Um, so if we were trying to recommend to get in, obviously you don't want to buy it on the open tomorrow or um, the morning of this podcast airing. So what, like wait a half an hour before the market? No, uh, no I, I guess the point I was trying to make is that if it was to gap up first, mm -hmm. Uh, then you don't want to be buying it on a gap. Right. Okay. I mean, the time to be buying it optimally would have been when we first talked about it before it started, you know, moving up. But the point is stocks that move up. I mean, this isn't going to stop, you know, it's gone a long way to go for both of them. So the way I like doing it is I like being in the market where I don't care if it goes down or if it goes up, because if I'm confident that it's going down to go up and, you know, then then I want it to go down so I could buy more. But you can't put all your money in once it's already gone because then you can't actually cheerlead for the sell-off so you could buy more. Mm -hmm. You're going to always be saying, I want it to go up, and then you're disappointed. And then you end up getting out early because what ends up happening is if the stock goes up, 
especially if you go all in and it goes up a bit tomorrow and then you're nervous because you got in late, you're going to just sell it for a few dollars profit. And then the next day it could go a lot higher and then you have no way to get in again. So the way I like doing it, especially if you've missed the beginning of it, I like just waiting. I mean, we don't have these podcasts in real time, like, you know, during the day. Not yet. Not yet. Uh, but I do have a service where I provide real-time information so that people could see what I'm doing in real time and talking about, and that's available on the Slack network. But uh, the reason why I'm mentioning that is because if during the day uh, or even pre-market, it recycles on a, on a one-minute chart and it says, hey, it's going to continue up all day, then you know the people that get that intelligence could just get in and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how high the market is as long as you know it's going higher and it has a reasonable place of support that's nearby. But right this second, uh, the, for example, for TNK, the last major break point like, that it broke out of was 1892. So if somebody's buying it here for the hopes of it going to 50 bucks, okay, so then just factor it in. You know, you know everybody has a different temperament of what they're willing to risk in terms of volatility and what they're willing to risk based on the total exposure uh, to an opportunity. So if you're going to put, if you're willing to put in X dollars, then I would split it into three. I would put in like, you know, okay, go in with a third, hope it goes down to $18 and 69 cents and then put in and put in a third. And then, uh, and then if there's another signal that forms in one of our podcasts, you can put in another third. The other option is I could go down to a shorter time frame. Maybe there might be something where there's a tighter um, entry. Let me just see if there is something. There could be. So for T- TNK. Mm-hmm. Let's see. At this point right now, uh, I believe, yeah, I mean, I'd have to like wait intraday to, to buy in again. So if somebody's buying, they just need to know that whatever they put in, don't put it all in, but maybe put a third in uh, at most and then buy on the pullback. Now, it may never go down because of the structure. It may never go down to 18 again. And the worst thing that happens is that you only own a third of what you wanted to own based on mm-hmm. your risk level. Okay. That's mm-hmm. not bad either. You're making something. Uh, but uh, the only other thing is that because intraday, no new signals have formed. So if something, let's say in the pre-market hours or in the next day or morning to, uh, tomorrow or in the next three days, I get a signal that says, oh, it's a buy signal at, at 2410. Or let's say the market continues higher in the next day and then it pulls back from 27 to 26 and I have a buy signal that says, oh, it's going to 35 and, it, it, you know, next on the short term. Then, then the point is it's not just going to 35, it's still going to 50. And now you have an area, uh, you know, of getting in at a, at a better level. So the only way around that when there isn't a short-term buy signal is to basically subscribe to you know to the premium uh, offering otherwise you're just going to have to deal with you know um, being aware of where the uh, intermediate term buy point is and 
just be satisfied with, uh, you know, does the risk make sense? I mean, if it's going to go to 50 bucks with the potential of that, then that's, there's a double. Um, and if the risk is, you know, if the area where I want to buy is 18, yeah, I mean, that's significant in terms of percentage if it was to do that. But the way I see it is I'm going to be, I'm going to be eyeing all over that. Cause if that happens, we're going to have a podcast and we're going to talk about the buy signal at that point. And then, right. you know, the person could go in with a third or even two thirds and we could have a stop that's much, much higher. And then basically get in there and then you don't even need to go back to where you originally bought it to break even because you're already going in with either more or this, you know, or the same amount. So it should average in nicely. And it's not averaging in based on statistics like, oh, you know, every month I get a buy in if it goes down. That's not based on how the market naturally builds itself and how it works. So what I'm looking at is these are key levels that are tied to um, how people are going to be perceiving changes in momentum going mm -hmm. into the future before they arrive there and actually get to track that momentum. So it's almost reverse engineering um, what other people may see at that time, but not trying to make a prediction about what news is coming out that day. The nice thing about being able to do that is that if you have an idea that the, that the perception of momentum is going to become more positive and people are going to be seeing this stock through more rosy glasses. It basically means any positive news reports that come in for this stock, which would be potentially negative news reports for crude oil or other issues that may not be related directly to that, uh, it would tend to amplify the value of that information because people are actually, you know, um, when you're wearing rosy glasses and you tend to not look at information that's negative and focus more on the positives. So you end up losing a lot of traders that are interested in selling the market while the market's going up. And then finally, when it's time to be selling and we have an indication that we've hit our target, what's probably going to happen um, as we get to that area and we'll evaluate that, but that's not for a while, um, that uh, maybe it flips around and the bias now turns where, you know, as time evolves, people start seeing, um, interpreting negative information as being more relevant and they don't focus on the good information. And then you end up getting a reversal in sentiment, which drives um, the emotions and prices back down. But right now, it, it, the direction is up in that space. The direction is up in the space in biotechs. And the relation is uh, up in certain uh, key technology stocks. But um, as I said, as we get towards the end of the month, I'm going to revisit seeing how high the stocks have gone by then and see if uh, there's some profit to be taken or if people aren't yet into the market and are interested in putting together a shopping list, then uh, at that point, I would you know, like to wait for a retracement um, in these favorite securities so that we could actually buy in at uh, key levels when the market's ready to do its next leg up as we um, move through the middle of the year. I don't think there was anything else that caught my eye today. Uh, you may have come across something. I, I did notice that uh, Codex jumped quite a bit today. Oh, yeah. So anything to do with those? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it did quite a bit. That, I, I believe when we originally talked about it, wasn't it around seven or eight? Yes. Yeah. So there's already a hundred percent return in, <laughs> in a few days. Um, and I think this is going to be, 
a common thing in, in biotech. Like normally biotech can move a lot under any conditions. Like it's been known that some companies can move up 200% in a day or in a week. But I think we're gonna we're entering a period in the next you know six months to when this um, vaccine is built that there'll probably be at least a half dozen companies, but most certainly probably a, a handful that will go up you know anywhere from twenty to fifty fold. And uh, I have an idea what they are. <laughs> so uh, we talked about one of them. Uh, well, actually, we talked about one of them, but I didn't actually mention the name mm-hmm. uh, because that still is being preserved. Uh, for our premium. But uh, I did mention a name earlier today, at least with that Red Hill Pharmaceuticals. I will mention a- another name. Uh, so why not? Let's... Uh, <laughs> Feeling <laughs> charitable, huh? <laughs> well, there's just so many names you could only do so much with. So, I mean, you know, the obvious ones that we talked about in the past was Regeneron, which is up significantly from when we talked about it in and Gilead. And, you know, those are the ones everyone knows about. <laughs> And I believe we talked about a few others, but one that caught my eye, I'm just going to believe it's OPK. OPK is one of them. And there's another one, actually. Where is it here? IBIO. Those are two interesting ones. So Opco Health. So I'm just going to actually mention it uh, to you uh, last week. And it had quite a spike today. Kind of went from uh, $1.70 to... uh, $2.06, which is pretty big uh, at the high. It closed Mm -hmm. at $1.98. It's really going to start. It's going to get quite interesting. This one looks like um, the next push up. A little bit of resistance at $2.43. It wants to go somewhere between $3.91 and $5.80. I mean, obviously, it could go way higher depending on what news happens because people always overshoot stocks. But I like looking at fair values, like on at least what I'm looking at. There's no such a thing as true fair value analysis based on fundamentals when it comes to biotechs because they're valued very differently. So when I'm referring to fair value, I'm talking, to fair, I'm talking about fair value based on um, the interaction effect of how decision makers would respond uh, to uh, sentiment and news event and news events in the market. So yeah, about you know somewhere around four bucks would make sense for this one. So it's still got a double at least. And then maybe a pullback and then way higher. I think this is a, a secular kind of move, but I don't like getting caught in secular moves in, in biotech stocks because a lot of stocks usually do, they kind of like do a huge move and then they kind of go to sleep for a while. So I would definitely be taking some serious profit and got to around four bucks. The other one is, uh, well, actually, I should probably uh, mention uh, what it does. They do a lot of uh, diagnostics. So they're going to be involved in uh, diagnosing the actual virus. Yeah, they got the fast tests. And the other company, they're dealing with some kind of uh, a vaccine in the space. And that company is uh, IBIO is the symbol. And the company is iBio. Uh, they're basically out of New York. That's what they do. They've got quite a few connections internationally with molecular uh, biotechnology companies. They've been around. And in terms of the signal, it's quite interesting. This one could be quite interesting, right? It's This one is extremely, I'm waiting for a short, this is very, very um, e-liquid. This is far more, da- like it does have a lot of liquidity. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'll give you an example. Uh, on the 27th, 
it uh, basically was down at uh, 29 cents. So it's a penny stock, okay? I don't really suggest people buying penny stocks. I'm just mentioning this just to, to show that there's even, even some penny stocks that are waking up in this space. Uh, it went from 29 cents up to uh, $3.40 from uh, on the 28th of February from uh, February 26th in two days. So that's like a massive move. The thing is, it appears as if it's going to be doing another massive move. It's not done. And this, it could actually, it wouldn't be surprised if this stock um, ends up at around uh, eight or nine bucks, uh, maybe higher than that, maybe 12. So yeah, it's got, could be a 10 bagger. But again, it's a penny stock. And the problem with it is the retracements, when it comes to penny stocks, there's, it doesn't matter where it's going. You have to assume that the retracements are anywhere from where it is to near zero. Hmm. Okay, so if anyone's like thinking about, you know, putting a lot of money in, it's like whatever you put in, it better not matter because you, you shouldn't have to care about the volatility period. Uh, there's about 10 stocks in my list that aren't necessarily, that aren't penny stocks, but the best way to do it is like, oh, you know, put a thousand into each name. And this way, the majority of them will pay for any one that has vol like big volatility before it takes off. But I do believe that this is one that hasn't seen its high, but uh, it's, it's certainly not, um, you know, the same kind of company like a Regeneron or, or like one of those other ones that um, I can't mention in the list, but because one of them in the list has the potential to do like a 63 bagger, but I, I don't think it's going to be the only one. It's just, those are the ones that I'm kind of focusing on. So I just think biotech is going to be big <laughs> and testing, like testing equipment. What about um, gold and silver? Oh, yeah. Well, gold, gold is the, the safe way to play it. Just because if there's another episode, let's say that that correction that potentially happens somewhere in, in May and June um, actually uh is is really not just a correction related to profit taking but let's say it could be tied to news events let's say you know people start going out before they're supposed to go out and the and the contact tracing isn't working the way it's supposed to work right away and everyone has to go back in i mean it's quite possible that you could get a retest of the lows uh in the market now, a retest of the lows in the market doesn't mean that the strong stocks are retesting the lows. It just means the strong stocks are pulling back for another leg up and the weak stocks are going are getting weaker. And, and it's the weak stocks that are pulling down the averages to retest the low, whether it goes lower or the same. But I don't think, you know, it's, but like I said in the last call, I just want to mention one thing. In our last podcast, I was really concerned about Canada when the next correction arrives in the States. Because while the correction in the States will be a pullback to go higher, the correction in, in Canada uh, is not going to be a correction. It's going to be a crash uh, that isn't going to recover the same way like it's going to in the States. I'd be very concerned about being uh, in Canada whatsoever uh, once I you know, have a podcast that confirms the beginning of the correction. It's not a matter of if, it's when. So whether it's 28th of April or whether it's May the 7th, whatever day it is, I'll know about it most likely a few days before when the setup's there and 
I will mention it. And if for whatever reason, a crazy event happens where it happens before I mention it, uh, at least you're warned about the timeline. And I don't believe it's a one day wonder if it happens. So there's going to be the ability to um, still be able to sell and take profit before you get in again. And definitely Canada um, could be a, quite a move down. So back to, back to gold. Um, the reason why gold over silver, potentially, in the, in the, in the near term, just, just from a tail risk point of view, is if we get into one of those situations again where there's a big move down, even if it's short term and volatility, are people going to be using gold again and especially silver like they did as a, uh, as a selling feature? Are they going to be selling it off because problems you know, and using it as collateral and stuff like that? So that's, that's the question. But if, if they're not, then uh, gold you know, should hold up relatively better than, uh, than the market. But because gold stocks and silver stocks are part of the market, they don't always move directly with gold. But all I can say is in the intermediate term, it looks very interesting. Get a look at, like, I'll give you an example. Barrick Gold, for example, which is like one of the senior producers. When we were talking about gold, it, it, it had a rally like from uh, 12, the low of 12 bucks to as high as 25 bucks. It almost doubled since uh, March 12th. Now, the thing is, this is a, the reason why I'm bringing up this stock because it's a pretty good benchmark. Like seniors, you know, is a benchmark for the price of gold, I'd say, because usually the people who run the gold companies understand the dynamics of the gold market better than anyone. If one of the senior gold stocks is saying that, hey, the market wants to go a lot higher, then it's usually an indicator that the actual underlying commodity wants to go higher. Now, that's not always the case. Like, I'll give you an example. When people trade the S&P futures as opposed to the S&P cash market or the SPIs, which is the exchange-traded fund, usually the futures market have the more senior traders and professionals involved in it because they hedge positions and they understand the dynamics of what's coming in the market. So usually you would look to the financial futures like the S&P futures as an indicator of what's actually going to happen in the S&P 500 stock market. But it's the opposite when it comes to commodities and especially commodities like silver and gold and oil. And I bring up oil because if you took a look at what happened to the price of oil companies, they were signaling something far worse than what the price of oil was signaling. Even though oil has come down a lot, the amount that those those uh, stocks have come down is just astronomical. And they were obviously indicating some, some senior people that understood the dynamics of the companies knew something was wrong. And, it, and it's kind of the opposite with gold. The senior people you know, know that something is going to happen. And, and that's why you're seeing the stocks actually um, respond. Because I could clearly, clearly tell you that since March the, uh, the 12th, since Barrick made that low when the market tanked, um, we have yet to see Canada or the S&P 500 make a new high. So clearly Barrick Gold, a senior producer, is outperforming the market, not just in terms of price levels, but in terms of its relative history of breaking out of the high that we recently had when the market was at a high. So that shows very um, intense relative strength. 
Um, but besides that, as I indicated in some of the previous podcasts, there's very significant fundamentals driving the gold market higher. And that is tied to the fact that we have a, uh, a government and a Fed that is uh, literally printing money. And, and it's not like they're printing money to, do, to go make you know, investments in, in other countries of the world. They're printing money, monetizing the money, and literally outright buying ETFs. They're in the business of buying exchange-traded funds, which are very speculative. And they're buying stocks that are overvalued, stocks that nobody would ever want, stocks that some people want. They don't care. They just want this market to go up. And that's reckless. It's, it's not even any, it's not something the Federal Reserve is supposed to be doing. But you know what? They have no choice because if they don't do it, then all the, and well, if they don't do it, then the perception is that the market's broken. And uh, you'd, you'd, you'd pretty much have a, probably a currency crash if uh, people realized uh, that there's no way to finance, uh, finance the debt. Or if there is a way to finance the debt, the government wants the value of the currency in the future to go so low that they only have to pay back the debt in cheap dollars. And then they could sell off their gold reserves when the price goes high due to their actions and then basically pay off the debt with gold. Meanwhile, the taxpayer and the average citizen loses out because they number one, there's, there'll be a high unemployment rate. Number two, uh, the price of goods are going to go up significantly. Um, you know, with pressures in the world where, uh, you know, workers are being brought back to the states at much higher labor rates, we're not going to be able to export um, inflation to other parts of the world. We're going to be importing inflation by uh, bringing jobs back here. It's a good thing, but it's a painful thing to reset. So um, it's kind of a balancing act between, you know, avoiding a crash in the stock market or avoiding a crash in, in, uh, in the actual um, underlying uh, purchasing power. In, in, in the and I mentioned this last time, in the beginning, it's probably going to be deflationary. And then later on, it'll be inflationary. Uh, deflationary in the asset, like from an asset point of view, assets could inflate initially. Uh, but, uh, and, and, and then and eventually the... Uh, the actual consumption of goods and the cost of goods will, will inflate and uh, that eventually will cause a crash. But for now we're, we're just in, you know, waiting for this, uh, this buying spree in the market to uh, reach some kind of local high, pull back and then get another big run up and then we'll see where we are um, and how much money has been printed. Cause the more they print, the more assets they buy. And, uh, and that's why um, how people feel in the economy is very, very different than how, um, let's say, um, the leader of a country looks at the uh, stock market and believes it's representative of the economy. Uh, it's, they're not the same, but I do agree with, with leaders that do um, believe that bringing jobs back are good building the, uh, the domestic economy is good. So I totally agree with that. Um, and I also agree um, with the fact that um, the U.S. Um, and a few other countries are, are leaders in, in technology 
which is driving the forward trend. So you can't really, I believe it's a bifurcated economy. And as long as you're in the right areas, uh, there will be jobs in those areas. And where there, is, where there aren't jobs, yes, those people will be suffering. So there could be a, a, a good economy and a bad economy at the same time, just depending on which side of the skill set uh, you know, one falls on. So, yeah. So just going back to bare gold here, just to give you an indication. So far, I talked about um, that there's been outperformance and I talked about the past action. But let's talk about the, the forward action and, you know, what could happen here. So looking at this, uh, okay. So looking at one of the longer term timeframes on Barrick and it looks rather interesting. Yeah, there's going to be, looks like going, it's, you know, going into the end of the year, there's a uh, intermediate term trend. And uh, which uh, I don't see any resistance, like really until around 47 bucks. So wouldn't be surprised that Barrick is going to, you know, maybe try to do a double again. You know, so whoever bought it and hasn't sold it at that uh, $12 area, they, yeah, they may get two doubles in there. Uh, I'm not saying that's like the high. I'm saying that's like, take your money <laughs> and, and say goodbye. But yeah, so that's bear. The other big one in the space that I would focus on, if you're a big, like, you know, always wanting like big cap companies kind of thing, then it would be Newmont Mining. They're like, one of the biggest uh, in the space. And uh, that's not like, it's already had a big run. So it's not one that I would necessarily, I'd be more inclined to prefer a barrack uh, kind of gold because it's been um, underpriced for years. And uh, I just believe that it's, uh, it's more favorably, uh, it's, it's, it's more attractive from a valuation point of view and, and the potential for some of their projects. So I'd stick with that on the seniors. And there's one other senior that's kind of interesting. Um, Ignico Eagle, but I'm just looking at it quickly. Uh, again, it's, it's, it, it's stodgy. It doesn't have the, I, I would stay away from those um, no matter how well they do, um, because I just believe that um, Barrick has a potential to do much better. Than those What's other it called names. again? Nico? Agnico Eagle Agnico. Mines. Yeah, they're, they're involved in, uh, in silver and gold. Gotcha. Yeah, I just, I really, really like, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, that's just a large cap one. I'm using that more as an indicator for, you know, the longer term. Mm -hmm. But uh, gold itself, I could easily make a case for much, much, much higher. Like, I like looking at gold relative to the uh, US dollar, like to the DXY, which is the US dollar index. Uh, like looking at that because gold has broken out tremendously in a lot of other currencies. But the US dollar being the world reserve currency that so much money has been sucked into the US from other countries because they're, people just don't, you know, they still trust the states the most in terms of their currency so far. I mean, when that changes, then we could have a problem with the currency, but for right now, uh, so gold hasn't really, you know, made all time, you know, highs in terms of, uh, 
the US dollar index. It's always nice to look at the ratio of gold to the US dollar index because if gold starts breaking out on the on, you know even relative to the strongest fiat currency then it tells you something um, because uh, about where this market could be going and we are entering an area where um, on a secular basis pushing significantly higher on gold now gold don't make a mistake gold goes through corrections like and it doesn't they're not necessarily tied to the uh, to the actual equity equities you know if equities smell that gold is going to go up over the long term then it doesn't really sometimes care about the short-term volatility and you could still have gold stocks double while gold goes down or up while it corrects before it goes up again so just looking at like you know areas of major support well just look you know look no further than where gold was like Basically, back in uh, March 17th, the ratio of gold to the uh, U.S. dollar index was around 14.48. And uh, right now it's at 16.88. So if that ratio, yeah, I mean, if it pushes back, I, I'd say 15.68 is one area. And then the second, second area of support would be the same level around the 14.50 or 14.60 area. That's like, you know, pretty much worst case. And then uh, I see the next push up of about to 22.64 on the ratio. So that's pretty significant in percentage terms. So it either means the U.S. dollar is going down, uh, which is taking gold up, or the price of gold is going up faster than the U.S. dollar is going up. So either way, I don't think that the direction of the U.S. dollar is going to have any impact uh, in the intermediate to long term, uh, in terms of the direction of gold, but you know, if we reach the target, then you know, I'll revisit it. But that's quite a ways away. Now, when I look at gold itself, we came down as low as uh, fourteen hundred and fifty-one. That was on March sixteenth. Normal retracements right now are in the intermediate term. I'm not talking about super short term. Super short term, that could be pretty tight. But looking at some major levels. There's lots of support. 1611 to uh, 1559 is one area of, of major support. And then you've got another area of support from 1500 to, uh, to an extreme of 1400. So technically that low that we had at 1451 could have actually gone down to 1400. It didn't. Now, if there, but if there was some kind of event where people were forced to liquidate all their assets and if gold's the only asset, that's doing well in a market that sells off in the short term, it's possible that they're forced to sell some gold. And so I would just take it as a buying opportunity because, you know, over 3000, but certainly over 2,500. The short term chart is something that's still developing. So mm -hmm. it may develop during the day and it's something I, I, I'm not comfortable talking about right now. So I'd rather just focus on the intermediate term perspective and it looks very, very interesting. Uh, in that area. So I'm just going to go to the J, the GDXJ. Um, just want to look at the um, ETF for the junior gold miners, because usually they start, when they start going up, that's the sign that a real bull market is likely going to ignite. And I'm seeing some indications now in the GDXJ that it wants to start going up. Very bullish on uh, small junior um, gold stocks, GDXJ. 
And I'm just going to look at GDL. So for example, like Eldorado? Yep. EGL? Yep. It's, it, it's quite probably like because GDXJ was underperforming Eldorado for a while, sometimes what happens is it could take a lead for a short second, but extremely interesting. I mean, I, I can make a case for uh, Eldorado uh, in my work, uh, you know, to go to a minimum of $36. Uh, and possibly to uh, over a hundred in this uh, next bull cycle. Wow. And we were there before, and I think this is a more serious cycle. So, but I want first things first, I'd be happy with 36. The point is much higher. Now, if there's a sell-off, we know what it does. Any small cap gold stocks suffer 50, 60% retracements in a very short period of time. But uh, they immediately snap back within a week or two. So not all the time, but when you're in a bull market, like what I think I'm in. So I'm not, I'm not concerned about El Dorado, but you know, if you want exposure and not to have like company specific risks and not just be only in one thing, then the GDXJ is a way to uh, get more exposure. Right. You know, to the whole. Uh, Less volatility. Well, no, not necessarily. <laughs> it's just, that if, if there was some rare event that was to happen in the short term that caused that stock to go down when the rest of the stocks were not affected, because let's say it was just company specific, maybe. Uh, oh, I been, gotcha. It could so be one of the two things. Company let's specific. Say, yeah, let's say there was, uh, there was an earthquake in a certain area where they had a mine and, that, and a different mine wasn't affected. And then they had to just refix that up and it cost them some more money. So that could cause one thing and i'm not saying i'm not talking about el dorado i'm talking about because they're pretty diversified that's actually one that i like a lot for that purpose but there's uh i'm just giving an example other companies that may be in the index they maybe they announce something like oh they had to shut their mind down because in that jurisdiction there was too much of uh you know the virus was uh, was spreading so they have to close it down or there was you know, maybe a geopolitical situation where the, the, the country confiscated a mine because <laughs> for property rights. I mean, the things like that have happened, but the jurisdiction that El Dorado has its properties in, it's not in areas that are likely to have any of those issues. That actually, they've reopened mines and actually are one of the few companies that are actually um, going to be producing a lot more gold in some lucrative areas, you know, as we move through uh, the year and next year. So there's a lot of catalysts there where mm -hmm. with some other companies, they're only necessarily riding on the price of gold, not necessarily an increase in the production due to new mines that they discover. Gotcha. Hey guys, thanks for listening. So this podcast is for information purposes. Only. It's not intended to be investment advice. Seek a duly licensed professional for actual investment.